everyone. Welcome back to Khan Academy's podcast. This is episode number four. I have with me Aaron Ross. Before we dive in, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Prehired. Prehired helps you start your six-figure sales career, enroll in the Prehired program, and get lifetime access to training, mentorship, resources, and community that will not only start your sales career, but continuously take it to the next level. Go to prehired.io forward slash Colin to apply and be bumped to the top of the list today. All right. Aaron uh, went to Palo Alto High School and Stanford University. He started his career in mergers and acquisitions. He had a two-year stint in product marketing, then became a co-founder of Elise, which shut down and liquidated after two years. He then joined Salesforce.com, now commonly known as Salesforce, where he spent what I would call the four years that changed his life. Aaron became a tremendous success at Salesforce, developing their outbound sales approach, which he calls cold calling 2.0. This sourced over $100 million in recurring revenue for Salesforce, where Aaron went on to lead corporate development and acquisitions. Aaron spent a total of four years at Salesforce and drove the company through the exponential growth that has turned them into the SaaS behemoth that they are today, with shares trading at over $250 on the New York Stock Exchange. I am uh, a proud investor as of last week. Uh, Aaron went on to write his book, Predictable Revenue, which has sold 200,000 copies and founded his company, Predictable Revenue, which has grown to over 60 employees and 4 million in revenue. Uh, So he's not just a teacher. He's also an operator. The sequel to Predictable Revenue was From Impossible to Inevitable, called The Growth Bible of Silicon Valley. He also has nine kids. So he's got his hands full. Uh, Aaron, it's been nine months. (laughs) <laughs> Although he plays it off like he's not that busy, but I have to imagine nine kids. No, no, uh, I, I don't do that. Yeah, I, I definitely. Yeah, I. In fact, in the books, in the Impossible book, I said I'm always tired, physically, mentally, emotionally. So yeah, no, it's, it's a lot, but it's fine. But it charges you too, right? Like I know I'm not a father, but I have two nieces and a nephew, and like when I see uh, them, it charges it, me in a way. Yeah, I mean, there's you can use the word charge. You could use the word motivate. Yeah kind of push there's push versus pull a lot of it's push where i have to do things and yeah i am excited to do things too so it's both i would say and then again i think i'm very open about how motivational having a big family is to have to make money um kind of like a push and the pull being excited to you know it's just uh i mean I'm, i'm very blessed there's i have a lot of everything there's a lot more fun and love and money but there's also a lot more everything else, which is like drama and like nine times more kids means nine times more fun, but also nine times more issues, challenges, more kids, more stuff problems. to deal with more, <laughs> more kids, more problems. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's been more, a- more kids, more everything. It's true. It's true. Well, I can't wait to have some someday. I love my nieces and nephew, but I'll tell you the nice thing about being an uncle is you get to clock out whenever you want. Uh, it's true. Great. It's true. <laughs> but again, it's kind of like the same thing. You say the great thing about being in, in which is the, an employee is you get to clock out versus when you're an, a business owner. It's very true. So, the irony there know, is like, I went out to start my own consultancy to kind of get more freedom. So it, uh, I guess it's when you, when you really start hiring employees is, is the big difference right now. I get to kind of swim in my own lane whenever I want. Yeah. I mean, you know, you gotta, I say you gotta choose your freedom. Like, some other people who say, oh, my God, you know, uh, I'm not sure if I, if I have kids or more kids, I have to give up my time and money. I'm like, well, yes, you, know, you can have the freedom of having more time and money. Um, I don't know. It's kind of or you can have the freedom of having more, you know, for me, like love and other things. It's like a different kind of freedom. So when you're an employee, 
you don't have the freedom of time as much, but you, you have the, or you have the freedom of uh, being able to have mental clock out. Yeah. <laughs> as an owner, it's a lot. Yeah. yeah as an owner, you have more freedom. So much. Yeah. So it's like, okay, you just got to choose. You like chocolate or vanilla, but they both have their pros and cons. Like, and being, a, being an entrepreneur, as it is, like, again, especially if you ever read the Impossible to Inevitable book, um, being an entrepreneur of any kind, a consultant, others, there's a lot of challenges that come with that, a lot of benefits and a lot of challenges. Yeah. Now, I don't know. I'm sure there's some people out there. I don't know them personally who um, I know there's a lot of them who say they're on the beach making money from, I don't know, wherever they are. It's all passive income. And there's probably some people like that. But all the entrepreneurs I know, whether they're making lots of money or not, are, are have a, a, it's a heavy emotional load to go with the heavy benefits that come with it. Yeah, it's, it always seems to be those folks who are in e-commerce who seem to have these lives that you're just like, how are you on the beach and you're rich? That's um, always some weird e-commerce business that these guys have. But uh, Yeah, well, and may, I'm sure some have that, but a lot of it is also posturing. Yes. Um, yes. They talk, you know, there's people who try to expose like the dark gurus where – uh, you know, there was, I can't remember who it was, there's some friend of mine, you know, I got, I know people who were in this and they said that there's some person promoting online courses, but of course the person didn't actually create the course. They hired someone else to even create the course. So it's, I don't know. It's all like a, sh- there's a lot of that be- out there and, yeah, it, and you I mean, see you know, it in the ads on Instagram constantly. Yep. And I'm, some people I'm sure are real and some people are not. Yeah. And I think so for my, like one of my premises, I remember this 10 years ago was premised around, you know, as the internet gets bigger and, and there's more noise and there's, um, it's an unending, it'll be an unending trend in the future of more technology that leads to more apps, more channels, more noise of all kinds. And um, anyone can claim anything on the internet. So what will happen is you have more information and more education out there, but you can't filter the junk from the good stuff. Yeah. So people are going to lean more and more towards trusted authorities to help filter through all the, you know, the, not the trash, just all the, all the stuff. Yeah. There's just a lot of noise. Everyone's trying to do it, which I guess is a good thing too, that people are putting themselves out there and trying to make money. But yeah, yeah, yeah you have great. to, you have to know what you're reading and who wrote it or, or who, who, uh, who's teaching you what, um, yeah. but I guess. Well, are you trying, yeah. Are you trying to make money by really helping people? Or are you just trying to make money you know, whether or not you're extracting money from people. Right, right. So creating some yeah. illusion of value and, and just having a call yeah, to action. Yeah, just to get, get the check in. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've seen those. I've seen those ads. I almost feel like I know who you're talking about just because it annoys me on Instagram every time I see it. But I've clicked through those and look at, you know, so I don't pay for it, but I, I click through and the ones that feel like they're just a ripoff are the ones that have these very long landing pages that are selling you and you're kind of scrolling through and they're like teasing you as if you're about to get the piece of information that they told you you're going to get and you get all the way to the bottom and you know, they're asking for a credit card or something like it just feels very, uh, it's, it feels like I'm being trapped into, into one of those things. But anyhow, I want to, for, for the audience, season one of this podcast is focusing on success stories. Season two was going to get most likely much more tactical um, but I wanted to bring in so some of about season two, season two. Fail- oh, look at that light focusing on if you had one season on success stories, but the next season on failure stories. That's actually not a bad idea, uh, yeah. particularly with CEOs. The, the challenges, yeah. I don't know, many people want to talk about them. I, I say this all the time. It's like we hear about, you know, people raising all this money, people having acquisitions, but we don't hear about like the 90 percent that fail. And I actually think that's where we can learn the most. 
I don't actually, I think most entrepreneurs, the thing is like once they're successful and I don't know about the ones who aren't um, once, you know, it's like, okay, I'm happy to talk about the, the my failures because I, you know, it's the past. I'm not traumatized. If it's the past. Right. Right. If yeah. It's, it's harder to say the things I'm failing at right now. So right. that's some people may be some, 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 not so much, but I think past failures people, cause then it becomes like a badge of honor. Oh, like Dan, like Dan Martell. He's like, um, if you don't know him, he's was a six. He's an entrepreneur from Canada. I don't remember exactly some of the wins he's had, but he now he does SAS Academy. Cool, okay. interesting guy. And he'll say that you know he was a. Um, and sorry if I get this wrong, Dan. Um, he was a drug. You know, when he was young, he was a drug addict. He had two businesses fail or three businesses fail. Um, you know, and was able to get clean and create. Not you know now he's sold one or two companies or three companies and the it wasn't rags to riches it was you know like um trauma to success right and i mean most people have some version that it's i think we all ever look back i I think most of us do maybe many don't want to share that side of it but but or you kind of overlook it sometimes i think if you just forget about some of the things you deal with when you're younger or time passes like oh yeah there was i mean um or you no, connect I, the dots to what it what it actually did good for you. I know yeah, I've I mean, had know plenty of struggles in my life, and they've all I think turned me into you know a better person over time. Yeah, I mean, and who who hasn't right? It's like I don't know if there's a an entrepreneur like do you, can you think of someone who comes to mind who seems like they had the perfect trajectory right? Uh, at Elon face Musk. value, my first CEO, you know, no. but once I got to know him and hear his story, you're like, wow, this guy's been through. Yeah, this guy's been through a lot. Yep. Yeah, I mean, think about popular ones like Elon Musk, you know, obviously totally, I mean, lots of challenges in many ways. Um, I don't know about Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, because, but I'm sure they had their, the shit they had to deal with. Well, let's um, talk about, they're... let's talk about your story. Yeah. Uh, okay, great. Let's, uh, me. Okay. I, I mean, look, I know that many people listening to this may have already read your books, right? So uh, and we also want to make sure that whoever hasn't read your book is going to read it. So we're not going to give all of the secrets True. away today. True. Um, we're not going to give all the secrets <laughs> away. But what I'd like to, to talk about, because, you know, we spoke nine months ago, we dove in real tactically on, on the broken SDR model. And we had we had some good back and forth there. Uh, that content was a big hit. I think people are still watching it. I yeah. get messages all the time about that. Um, but what I want to uh, I really just want to get to know you a bit more and your backstory uh, obviously I've read it, but I'm sure there's things that are not in the book, right? That uh, were struggles you went through, et cetera. Um, I mean, I'm curious to, to kind of just start back quickly from you went to uh, school in Palo Alto, then you went to Stanford. What was the plan coming out of school? Were you planning on getting into sales? I mean, you went into mergers and acquisitions. I'm not sure exactly what you were doing there, but you know, what was, uh, what was the game plan coming out as a Stanford grad? I'm not really sure. I mean, I remember vaguely because back when I was uh, in high school, I don't remember ever people really asking much like what I want to do with my life. I feel like that's a really common question. I may be too common for kids, you know, like, what do you want to do? Or like have a plan. And And they say something like be a firefighter or a doctor, like no one knows. I don't know. And so I don't feel like that was as much a thing for me. I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to be like an astronaut or a pilot. But by the time I was, um, and I had fun just programming in, in high school. I did a couple of summer, summer internships, summer jobs. Um, but so I went to Stanford is like, ah, well, I knew I didn't want to do programming and I wanted to do engineering. I just felt like that was more of my thing. I didn't really know what type I picked civil engineering. Cause I feel like 
I don't know, environmental civil civil engineering that there'd be good market to get into. Sure. Uh, didn't even know what that kind of job would look like. And by the time I graduated, I'd done again a couple more like, computer programming internships, and I also did a college pro pa- like a painting franchise, and that went really well. So I think by the time I graduated, I was like, well, I don't really want to do engineering. There weren't that many jobs, mm-hmm. and I found out about like investment banking and consulting, which also I remember sounded more interesting and paid a lot more money. So like, oh, I want to do those, like learn about business because I didn't really. Kn- I mean, I'd done some things. I'd I'd had a couple of small projects, and I. Thinking yeah, back, so I was going to say, had you, you at know, this point in your life, have you had any sales experiences, whether it was, you know, selling yeah. snow cones at a park or like anything? Yeah. I mean, there's one when I was, I feel like I was in ninth grade. We, we, friend and I, we were, we went door to door and for, I don't know, five or 10 bucks, um, painted the house numbers on the street, on the curb That's with spray brilliant. paint and like stencils. And then, um, that's a great idea because you can hit every house in the neighborhood and no one wants to be the one who doesn't have it. Yeah. You know, some people, I don't know. It's nice. And then, um, I did some programming at some point later in high school for my father's company, like some projects. And this is back, of course, like the MS DOS type days. Yeah. Uh, that was like, it was, it was just more of like for fun, but in, I don't know what year when I was at Stanford, I did, I worked at the newspaper for maybe a quarter, this okay. temper daily selling ads. I don't even remember why I took that job or how. And funny enough, I worked there with Gina Bianchini, who, I don't know if you've heard of, uh, Mighty Networks is the CEO there. Um, I don't even remember anyone else who worked at the paper at that time. And I remember like going down to restaurants and selling $50 ad placements for the paper. I don't think I was that good at it. I didn't really know what I was doing. I don't think I really got much training. You were in high school at this time? No, that was early college at Stanford. Okay. But the big, I think the major thing was uh, doing, and I, I, so one more thing, I do remember back when high school getting magazines and popular mechanics and then back of those, they had mail order, like how to make money at home. You know, this is before the internet, of course, right. I'm right. almost 50. So with like, uh, eighties, uh, be interested, like, Oh, there's ways to make money at home. Never really did much with it. But the main thing I think it was, a, it was different doing a painting franchise later in college for a summer college pro painters where, um, I had to go knock door to door and they would, so they would do some lead gen for me. I'd knock door to door and sell painting projects and had to hire people, find painters, um, train them. And I actually did really well with that that summer. So that was still, again, just kind of like figuring it out. There really wasn't any systems like the, it was good to work with a franchise, but I didn't really know what sales was, you know, the word, I didn't really understand Even all that. I was still more. It. Yeah. Yeah, I never, I don't know, just never really thought about it, didn't understand it. Like marketing sales weren't really terms, you know, it's still more coming from more of like a programmer side yeah. of things. And But you, you clearly know, had an, an entrepreneurial spirit in you. So, yeah, sort of. I mean, again, you have like the types, there's a, there's a spectrum, right? You have Gary, a Gary V or people who by the time they're 20 have started three businesses already. Right. And uh, I did a couple little things, you know, like the curb painting, we probably did for like two weeks. I don't remember. You probably and needed money some for something, right? And you figured I, don't know, out I probably made like 50 bucks. I was like, yeah, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember what happened there. Um, and so I didn't have the kind of like natural drive where I was just like work and work, figure it out, figure, you know, but I was opportunistic. I was like, okay, hey, I'll try this out for a summer. I'll try this out for a thing. And so... Again, by the time I left Stanford and doing investment banking 
and pro, you know, still kind of in more of like an employee mindset of yeah. like doing jobs out there and was really, wasn't really focused on this. I'm going to go start my own thing yet. Now, again, back at the time, we weren't, we weren't surrounded by the internet with like all the, and the profusion of opportunity. Right. And information, so, right. To even learn about the opportunities. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And overwhelm. So I can't say like today, like I have teenagers and things and they, I have one, they get overwhelmed by like, what do I do? I either, I have too many interests or I don't, and I don't know how to pick one or I, I yeah. don't know what I want to do. So different opportunity, different challenge. Um, I don't envy them now. I do, but I don't. I'm kind of glad I'm past that. Definitely don't envy my teenage, my teenage daughter applying to colleges. I'm like, I don't miss that at all. I don't want to go back. I'm done with that. So oh, I think just the uh, social pressure the kids have today is so much more extreme. Uh, I, I mean, it almost like it was barely existent when I was a kid, right? It was like the social pressure was, there, was like, if yeah. you don't go to college, like your parents can't brag and like, you're kind of just not on par with where you should be. But now it's like the social pressure is digital and everything a kid Constant. does, they're worried yeah. about the judging and, and the negativity. Uh, yeah. it's, and it's, there's no question that that's going to influence the decisions people make. And I yeah. just hope that it doesn't lead them to a place of unhappiness, right? Because you're making decisions for the vanity of what it's going to look like yeah. rather than, you know, what's inside. <laughs> That's when yeah, I think about no. my nieces and nephew. I just think, I just hope they make the, the right decisions. And I'm so glad, like, when I was in college, that there was no Instagram and there's no TikTok and there's no long documented thing of all the stupid things that I did in school, yeah. you know? Like, know. thank God I got in before that. <laughs> it's like they have, but you know, the thing is that they have the teenagers today and I've got some right and amazing opportunities like never before, but yeah, the pressure. So it's kind of like yeah. the same thing, more opportunity, but more challenge at the same time. Right. I, I wouldn't say it's better worse. It's just different. It's just different. And I don't right. know how exactly. I would, I don't know how I would have dealt with today, but yeah, like that constant digital it, it's, it's, I don't know. I got nine kids. I'm like, I don't know. It's, it's are they all extent. over social media? Like, are they doing TikTok? The older ones. And stuff? I'm like, yeah. I mean, yeah, the older yeah. ones totally. That's like, and I, my, Younger ones, like how it's tough because how do you, how do you not shield them? How do you kind of help them learn how to deal with that and the pressure? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when do you give them a phone? Because if you wait too long, like I'm relatively anti-phone in general. It's even, I, I love mine because I can do things, but I hate mine because it's just annoying. Do you, and let so, me ask you this. So my sister's got, uh, I have two sisters. One has uh, two, yeah. two girls. Uh, the other one has a young boy. So they're all very young. And what I've seen is that the iPhone has sort of become like the piece of candy to shut them up. Um, you know, when they just absolutely will not behave, there's the one yep. cure all in every scenario yep. and it's YouTube. Uh, is yep. it the same with your kids? And do you allow them to, do you use that sometimes when you're just like, ah, uh, enough is enough, here's YouTube. Yeah, sometimes we, I don't, we don't like doing it, but you right. know, like, especially if we're sick, tired or so there's just, I will say that, yeah, um, we, we avoid doing it as much as we can, you know, and just like, in general, trying to like, I think as a parent too, it's hard because when a child is crying because and you can kind of tell if they're hurt versus they just trying to get what they want. Yeah. And okay. They want, they basically are crying to get what they want. Let's say I'm our three-year-old. We have, we don't have the terrible twos. We get the terrible threes. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't want to pick you up because I know, I mean, I do, but I'm just going to reward the, this type of crying. It just incentivizes the behavior to happen again. Yeah. Yeah. And yet I'm trying to, I have other kids I need to get the door and I have, I have, it's not like I'm one person with one child and I can just sit there for an hour while they cry. 
Well, that's why I was interested to ask you, because I would think if anyone's giving into that, it's got to be you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but not so much with the usually the phone. So, but sometimes. So it's more like it's a conscious decision. Like you know, I just got to pick my, I got to pick my battles and the places where I put my energy, and I'm going to pick you up. And or it might be like I think pretty rarely if they're um, like if they're crying and maybe they got hurt. For me, it's like okay, you got hurt. I'm not. I don't want to try to stop you from crying. I'll just kind of let you cry it out you know kind of like have the pain and it's okay to cry and it's okay to get hurt yeah and not necessarily try to distract you and like you know unless there's something else going on you need to balance think, um, yeah and sometimes yeah it bothers yeah it bothers my wife more when they're really hurt um and we each have our our areas where we get triggered like the things yeah. that we don't really care about and things we do care about things we're more emo- that we're emotionally strong to and the things that we're you know, we, uh, I guess get triggered by. So I would say that it's hard. It, I can see how easy it is because it's stressful when you have kids and to kind of like just basically pacify them with YouTube. So, you know, again, once in a while when you really need it, but if it becomes too much of a habit, um, because it's convenient, then you know, it's just dangerous ground as well. It is. They're, they no, get addicted think, to it. Then again, I'm fascinated yeah. by some of the things they learn by watching YouTube all the time. Yeah. So I think what we 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 aim to do is if it's YouTube and things like even for movie, we do uh, Friday night movie night because I think that is where too like they they see everyone with phones around them. I'm like to some extent, I would love to not have phones at all for the young kids around it. All, but it's just not practical with like teenagers and yeah, us and like yeah. business. I got like business and stuff and like around the world in some right, ways. Right. Yeah. So, which, um, not saying that off because it's like sexy, it's just like all the time zone differences and there's like shit going on. I got to respond to sometimes. Yeah. So, but on YouTube, like, yeah, it's amazing the things you can learn. Um, or like we stick to like classics and musicals as much as we can for movie night with the younger ones. Um, you got any kids watching Blippy? Uh, actually, yeah, one of them yeah. we discovered Blippy. So not so much lately, but yeah, a year or two ago, like Blippy because oh, there's obsessed. like an airplane one. Yeah. Yep, airplane. that guy's that guy's worth yeah. twenty five million dollars for making YouTube children's. Yeah, movies. man. It's so again, the thing is, it's amazing that the stuff people can do with. Right. Yeah. So there's this other by this other separate danger. Um, but yeah, so I think the amount of stuff that they can learn is is incredible plus all the amount of like crap that you can find that just like waste you your brain control what they're watching i i, I think that's the yeah that's the key to some extent yeah and try to teach them same thing with apps you know i'm in the, the zone of with like 11 year old and eight year old and we're gonna do apps and okay minecraft we do that great um but there's a what's there's a, a game called like sub i call them there's a category category of games i call slot machine games um have you know subway surfer i don't play any video games nothing Okay, well, it's a one so, bad I don't habit know. I don't have. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's a bad habit. It kind of, kind well, of depends. Sure. I, 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 thing, I have like an addictive personality, though. So if I get into like gambling or, you know, playing video games, like I'll do it all the time. And so I just yeah. steer clear of that stuff. I gotcha. Yeah, I get that. Um, so, well, I'll give you an example. So Subway Surfer, you're basically just dodging stuff. It's the same thing you do just over and over again. It's just you're getting coins. Got it. So there's no. It's like a Tetris a lot concept. Of these, Somewhat. Yeah, it's not even not even as puzzle solving. It's more um, that basically the mo- the point of the game. It's almost like you're just doing it to get coins. So I look at that. I come a slot machine game. It's a popular one, so I pick that. 
you oh, see or that Dragon as good Bale? or bad for the kids? Bad. You don't, no, no, you don't bad. want them doing not, it. Yeah. No, 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 no. She's not learning anything. But, it's, it, I haven't even learning. Or Minecraft, where, okay, like you're building stuff, you're exploring. That's cool. And then also mm-hmm. what's fun is like the couple of the younger kids will play with a teen brother, Minecraft. So, okay, that's like, it's a good family bonding. So, you know, there's no, it's not like a magic answer, but we, the, the goal is to, for them to do, uh, if they're using screens for more for like learning or having fun with the family or the people and not just kind of like distracting themselves from being bored. Like there's this aversion to being bored. Like people, especially, with te- you know, older kids, like, you know, when I was a kid, I got bored a lot. All the time. And today and it's like said, people just read a can't. book. Go read yeah, a book. Or I, I played by my, you know. Play outside. So it's like, yeah, there's just, there's just this like aversion to being, I can't be bored. It's like this, oh my God. Well, the, our brains are programmed thing. now with all the digital. I mean, I don't know if you saw that Netflix special. I forget exactly what it was called, but uh, they talked all about how all these apps are just, <clears throat> it's fascinating, by the way. I'll have to send you the name, but um, they go into the science behind how these apps are designed to addict us, right? To get us to just keep coming. Oh, back, yeah. Back, is that the social back. experiment? <laughs> That's social what it's called. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, these it kids is, yeah. are getting Make some money. this type of brainwashing very early in the in the years that their brains are still developing most and that's what's scary because like i'm addicted to the iphone and i didn't get brainwashed that young and and so they're going to be even worse with it um but yeah i guess it's just a i guess it's just a reality anyhow for for those who are listening who have kids you just got 25 minutes of uh parental advice from a guy who who has probably more kids than you do um let's uh let's pivot a little bit we've got about 20 minutes left I want to dive into, so, so you got out of school. Sounds like there was no clear plan to, to be getting into sales, which is basically how all our stories start, right? We usually just stumble into this somehow. Um, yeah, so I you, did. You, you did a couple jobs, right? You founded a company. Um, maybe talk uh, just briefly about founding Lease Exchange and how that led into uh, going to Salesforce, what that transition was. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember I was at a company and I applied to Stanford Business School one of the questions was, what did I want to do with my life? And actually, I never really thought about it or really took that seriously. And I was like, oh, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur like my father. And that was the first time I remember, oh, thinking, um, hmm, I'm going to start a company. And that led me to, within a few weeks or a couple of few months, finding someone and coming with an idea to start a company called Lease, well, at the time, equipmentleasing.com, okay. Lease Exchange. But so I think it was really just, having that kind of moment in my life of like having a different view of what I wanted to do. And once I started to think like that, it's when I started to see opportunities. So having said that, I was like late twenties. And so we, we got together. He was in the, in the leasing industry. I was, I was not. And we kind of put a, got some stuff going. Ultimately we raised some money and uh, some venture money. And again, I made, Let's see, hired the wrong, didn't know how to hire a right technical person. Mm-hmm. Um, we Were got you both better. Uh, non-technical people? Yeah. 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 Um, oh, we've, so the main thing is once we got the company up, product up, had some sales going, small sales and partners, and we had a VP of sales. And that was when, you know, there had this thing called Goldmine. I didn't even know what it did. And if sales weren't working, uh, again, I was kind of like this, well, the old mistakes around like high, you know, do we have enough people doing it? Are they making enough, like enough activity? And they're basically signing partners. And so you had no uh, sales training or anything at this point. You you were really trying to figure it no, out. On your no own. professional. Yeah. No professional yeah. experience, except through what I did at the painting franchise. And I had some contact through sales 
at this company called Pandestic, where I was doing product marketing. So I worked with salespeople. Yep. I didn't really, it wasn't, it was more, you know, I ended up creating a lot of material to help them better explain what they did. So I didn't really know how sales was working at that point. We didn't really have contact as much in like in the sales process. And that company was dysfunctional in its own way anyway. So you figured we'll hire a VP of sales. They'll, they'll they know what they're doing. Hire to be is sales, that a good hire? hire some people. Yeah, for the most part, he was a good guy. He hired some salespeople. It really wasn't his fault when it wasn't working. It was all new, right? This whole internet, all this internet thing that we're doing. Yeah. It. Um, but you know, I didn't know, uh, go back if I had had the, especially the From Impossible to Inevitable book, which is really more of like a, a growth Bible or even predictable, right? They both have a lot of lessons I learned from making mistakes. But I, um, I just didn't, didn't know, and that was, but led me to, okay, I got to learn how to do sales, right? I'm going to get a sales job because you can read as much as you okay, want, so but you don't really learn something that, until you do it. That's where know? that clicked in your head. Like you're like, all right, I, we're trying to build this business. Clearly, if I knew sales better, like we, we maybe would have done better here. That's what I want to learn next. Is that kind of yep. how that ha- got it? Yep. And how did you, just to cover on like the, the ending of lease exchange, because I think this is helpful for people who maybe are running companies that are struggling or having problems or they're early. But when did you decide to throw in the towel? Like what, what made that? Because that's a big decision especially when you've gotten well, I think, as far as you have, like, did you just my, run out of money? Choice. And had no we choice ran out of, or? yeah, basically okay. ran out of money okay. and had no choice. Yeah, that was, got it. Okay. Now so it got, it ultimately got kind of re, re, rebuilt and converted by my, my partner into today. It's called e-lease. So it's equipment leasing. Oh, so it still exists. So it would. Yeah. Um, oh. yeah, we got, yeah, there's no, you know, I, I don't think it wasn't even the same company, but he basically re cause that's what he did before. Okay. Uh, it would have been a good small business, but not. This is the company it was kind of like a, a lending tree, but for business finance, and probably could have been done. Probably could have been done well. We just didn't have the right team and experience, and you know, hindsight. Good, good lessons but, learned, though. But so now it's good lessons learned. So now it's two thousand two, two thousand one, two thousand two, uh, and you find Salesforce now. At this time, just to as a reminder for everyone, like. How well known was Salesforce at this time? Because today we it's the um, biggest company like in the world, right? Yeah, no. In in the Bay Area, I think it's pretty well known because they were they were about 150 people and doing like okay. 20, so 5, big, 20, 25 million. They're on their way, they're successful. They're obviously yeah, not in the, the big that they are today. But so you came yeah. in, they have about hundred people. And so they hired you for director of corporate sales. What was that role exactly? Uh hi, sorry, they hired me as a sales rep. Okay. Which wasn't it. even as quota carrying. That was the that was the and basically inbound SDR answering the 800 line. So that was the only sales job they had. And I remember thinking they had a sale, like an AE job, inside sales. They just, it was new and they just filled it before I, um, so like, all right, well, I'll take this job and just make for a better story, but it's going to get to work my way up from that. Really was like the bottom, bottom job. But there was no more junior job at Salesforce than that. So that's similar in a way to my career. Like I spent the first four years doing something completely different, then decided to get into sales and had to go all the way down to the entry level uh, role to get in there. But then you grew uh, pretty quickly, right? When, as you got in there, what was that, that journey? I know in the book you explain, like, you know, you, you figured out this cold calling 2.0 idea uh, and, and sort of really brought that to life. You know, you probably did a lot of internal uh, selling and, and, and getting people on board, uh, obviously yep. all the, all the details are in the book, but, um, how did you, you know, if you want to give away a little bit of what's in the book, like when, when did that click for you? How'd you come up with that idea? What was the big vision? Yeah. I mean, an advice I would say is for people who want to make a difference in their, in their career. Um, you know, what I did was I, 
so I had comp for some, I just had confidence that if I went to Salesforce, I could figure something else. I could figure something out, right. Some way to make a right. difference. And so taking the most junior job there was like a stepping stone. I, in my mind, like, okay, I'll take this job. I'll build back to something else. And then I'll learn what I need at some point. Then I'll leave to go start another company. Right. It's a, and it's again, a foot I think in the door at a good place. Yeah. And that was more from mindset than prior success. I just kind of believed in that I could do it at that point. Yep. And, um, so if Salesforce, the first job, I just for three months or so worked really hard to get great at that inbound SDR job and put big numbers up and um, kind of out hustle other people there. And it was, you know, wasn't a hard job to figure out. And in three months, I was already pretty bored and was proposing. But I, one thing I had done, and I really recommend to anyone starting companies or companies when they onboard new people was I started at Salesforce. I also went around and I, for the first few weeks, just talked and met people at all different functions support, development, a uh, new president, sales, marketing, just to kind of get to know people around the company and see how different parts of the company worked. And I think it's really a, a missed opportunity for both the new employee and a company when you have someone come in and sales job and you're just like, okay, start selling, sell, 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 you know, versus a chance to get to know more of the company people. And a lot of those relationships came in handy later, yeah, they definitely whether it was... But and it, one thing I did, I saw and I noticed was a pro, this challenge around we were going up market enterprise and we didn't have, we were hiring field salespeople and building a product. We didn't have pipeline for it. So that's kind of my no talking to people. no outbound at this point, right? No effective outbound. They, we tried hiring an external firm. Yep. We, um, salespeople, we hired a bunch of experienced field salespeople who were supposed to bring in their prior relationships. They didn't. Like zero, Like one. Yep. Almost yeah, that's zero. usually how that goes, by the way. Yep. Yeah. And we had a couple of junior people. They were switched to doing outbound calling. Mm-hmm. It was just really scattershot. Even I didn't even know what was happening, but even I could tell they were just like flailing around. There wasn't really much direction. So I was like, well, I don't know what the solution is, but I know I could do better than whatever's happening. Mm-hmm. If I just put some focus on it. And I luckily had a VP I worked for who got the approval to do that for like three months or some amount of time. Cause you know, so you had this uh, idea, you, you pitch it to the leadership and you say, can you give me some time to, to prove this out? Yep. So yeah, it took three, three or four months to kind of get the systems going, figure it out and figure it outbound. I remember, uh, you know, reading a bunch of books like Vito and there's, a, I don't remember the names of them at this time and nothing, none of that worked for me. And just kind of feeling, you know what, I got to just start figure something out from scratch. And that was kind of the cold emailing and referral approach. And that started in you know, being an engineer still really is mentality and just kept engineering that approach over the course of that year is 2003. And uh, so first I was doing it myself and I'm glad because that really gave me a lot of the, the grounds up details and tactical stuff of inbound and outbound. And then we, they said, all right, well, Aaron, you're, you can do it, but can we hire someone else to do it? So we hired a second person, trained them, they did it. And then, it was a year later, basically, when they, and then after months, I'm just like, ah, oh, this is working. Why can't we just move this along? Um, realized kind of how long it could take to get kind of internal buy-in from an executive level to invest in something. Yeah. And a year later, uh, and there was actually like an leadership change too. They said, all right, let's grow this from two people to 12 because it's working. So it took a lot they, longer. They wanted you to be in charge to. of that. Yep. Yep. So again, so that's your first was, opportunity to build out a sales team. Yeah, and that was and that was learning kind of partly 
how long things can take in a company to kind of prove, you know, what kind of uh, proof level do you want? And sometimes you have to wait for like a leader, people change and just have to be patient while you're putting up the results and being willing to like do the work yourself to get your hands dirty without ego. Right. And I think that's something I do recommend. Um, even taking that first sales job went from being an internet company CEO to like this junior rep. I just wanted to learn and I needed to, and it wasn't about the title. I kind of did what I needed to do to get where I wanted to get to. Right. I didn't let now, luckily I didn't have kids or family at that time where you, if you have to make money for the family, that limit does, I couldn't have done that if I had a family at that time. Right. All right. So, so that's your, that's your push into Salesforce. You come up with this huge idea. They start making an investment. It obviously grew huge. You, you brought in over a hundred million recurring revenue. Um, what, what led you to, and, and for everyone listening again, there's way more detail in the book. So buy the book. Um, what led you to decide it's time to leave Salesforce? Uh, well, the short answer is, so I was in the M&A group after three years. I built the outbound team for three years, moved to the M&A group because um, it was new. Um, worked for a guy named John Samorjai. He was a great guy. still there. And after about a year, they wanted me to, to go to Ireland. They said, hey, do you want to go to Ireland to fix the EMEA, you know, SDR outbound team? And I said, eh, I don't know. Wasn't that excited for different reasons. I'll be excited if I get a promotion, I'll do it. And I said, eh. So it just was kind of like time, time to move on where they, I would say they wanted me to, then they like, they wanted me to leave. And I said, yeah, I wanted to leave. So it wasn't really like they fired me. I didn't really quit. It was just like, mm, it's just time to move on. They gave you an opportunity and, you didn't really want. And, and I guess you're fully vested at this point. I imagine stock options yeah, are investing on full years back then too. Yeah, my stock options are very small. It basically was enough to pay for some di like divorce debt. Oh, because you did, um, I guess, yeah, you got in there. When I started. One thing that cleared up here is you got in there, they were already pretty big. In my head, I was kind of imagining that, that uh, it was earlier. <laughs> Yeah. And well, I mean, the, the, the job I took had a very, I mean, I got promoted like seven, I don't know, like a lot of, well, in four years, I don't know. Cause they're growing a lot so of fast, right? Like, so growing, actually for, for perspective, you start, they have a hundred employees roughly where were they when you left four years later? Uh, or it was about 150 when I started and there was like 2000 when I, in four That's years. When insane. I left. Yeah. But also I was like, you know, pushing from SDR to prospector to manager to direct, you know, I was, I don't know about seven times, but I got promoted a bunch of times because I was just like pushing. Um, but still, like I, it was a very few, not that many options just because of where I started got at it. that junior job. But, you know, so you, again, you decide to leave. And uh, how did you like, did you know what you wanted to do when you left? Was it like, I'm going to go write a book. I'm going to go start this business. Like, how did that fall into place? Yeah, well, I think where I went was I was OK. I knew I wanted to start another business. And where I started was, okay, I'm going to start a, another tech company and raise money and be CEO. That's sort of that, that along those lines. And probably be time for another day. You know, we're running short on time here where what happened was um, it's like all the expectations I, I, when I left, all the things I expected happened, none of that did. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I'm not going to do sales consulting because I'm just tired of that. And I'm going to start a tech company, raise money and be in Silicon Valley. And then, so I ended up like actually doing some sales consulting and did you um, kind of get worked. sucked into that? Was it like people yeah. saw that you were so successful at this outbound, uh, you know, sales development, building that org, 
so I imagine you kind of just, that's kind of what I thought you were going to say is like the market just sort of pulled you into it because everyone wants to learn from you. And did that evolve into maybe I should write a book? Maybe I should be speaking and. Yeah. I mean, again, at the time Salesforce wasn't, was big, but it wasn't like that. It was huge. And I don't think people, a lot of people, some people knew about what I had done there. Cause I, and I started blogging. It's back when it, blogging was actually banned at Salesforce technically. So I don't remember when they opened it up. Wow. So I don't know, some people that I knew knew what I had done, but I hadn't really documented it. I hadn't published it as much yet, um, but got pulled in and worked at a venture firm for a bit. So long story short was kind of in reflecting after six months or so, I, was, I remember I was in Asia on a trip to see a friend. I was just reflecting on what I wanted to do and like, how do you know what? I don't want to raise money. I don't want to start a tech company. I don't want to... Um, you sort of like, I just flipped everything to like, well, I, I, I don't know what I want to do yet, but I know I want to do something I love and make as much money as I want. So like and make as much money as I want to do what I love. To do. I, uh, I didn't, I knew some things I knew yeah. where I didn't want to start. I was like, well, I kind of have to go explore and figure out what that is. Um, and ended up, so doing sales consulting to pay the bills, you know, part-time for years while I was exploring, like I created something called unique genius. Um, Helping people make money through enjoyment and CEO flow, which is my first book. And, you know, really, so that's, again, there's a lot more to that. Uh, just trying different things and ultimately didn't come back to publishing the book and really doubling down on outbound prospecting, which was in 2011 until I got married and had kids. And again, that's the impossible book, which for any entrepreneurs, if you're starting a company or, or a manager level like the from impossible to inevitable book is probably a better one to start with. Uh, if you're, you know, in an SDR, like a sales executive, a particular revenue book is a better one. But the impossible book, I talk about how I tried these different uh, approaches and that's kind of this whole thing around nailing a niche, my own experience mm -hmm. and seeing the same problem with so many companies and, uh, you know, having to get married and I'm not having, I'm sorry, getting married in 2011, having to support a family, but, oh, I have to like, amp up my income now right because i have a family to support and so really tripling down on up on prospecting and publishing the book and making predictable revenue um, was the goal with the there. book to like i always ask people who write sales books like was the goal to make money off the book or was the goal for the book to be really a marketing engine for everything else that you're going to do a marketing engine i mean i, I wanted to write the book and publish a book because that was just kind of in me and I think what happened was I've been working on it and that, and that just helped push, make it happen. I had to right. pull the trigger and do it. I'd actually had a book deal leaving Salesforce with Wiley, which is a business publisher in 20, 2006. And I just, I didn't act on it. And I think it would have been the wrong book. It wouldn't have been predictable revenue. It would have been a, a more boring, let's say typical like, sales book. And by taking a few years to really kind of test the ideas and uh, what do you say, like pull out the, you know, when you take out like the best, you, know, you you take out the best and you kind of simplify it and you, I don't know, cook it in a way, bake the ideas for a few years. It, it turned into a much better book by taking a few extra years to, to do it. So Got it. I got to wrap we're just up about and up say, on time. Do you want to yeah. just give a quick overview of what the predictable revenue business is and, and, and what you're offering? Yeah. So the predictable revenue business today, it's really about outbound prospecting. So a lot of the businesses, if you want to do outbound prospecting, and it's for, you know, in business to business companies, of course, 
and you don't want to build that program yourself, we offer like an SDR as a service program. So we can kind of staff and train and set you up with uh, part of your remote team, outbound prospector or prospectors. Do you have a, are, are you, in terms of customers you'll take on for that, are you very specific with the types of businesses you'll work with? Is it enterprise SMB or is it a good mix? Uh, you just generally have to have probably at least a couple million in revenue. So you have something there that's, that can grow and um, a type a segment of customer that is at least lifetime value of like $20,000 and up. Got it. You know, Got if it. you're in a, t in like, if you're in a really competitive niche thing is like, we're not going to do that. Like we have another side of the business, which is we show you how to do it, right? If you want to build your own team or fix it, we can show you how to like, stand up your own team and teach you how to like, you know, that it's comp and sequences and other things. Is that like a consulting model or is that like online training courses? Uh, no, it's, it's consulting, consulting, coaching, some training, but mostly consulting and coaching. And part of what that is, is if you are in a challenging market where outbound's not going to be a fit, we have ways to kind of like assess that and make other recommendations that could include like not doing outbound, but that's part of our process. But I would say if you're, if you're new to all this, either the predictable revenue book or impossible book really will give you so much base information on how to think about outbound or think about growth before you start thinking about investing in a, in a service or hiring people. Got it. And where can people find the books? Are they available everywhere? They're uh, Amazon. Yep. Um, I'm sure there's links on predictablerevenue.com to them, but uh, also from impossible.com is its own landing page where you can get a free chapter from that book. So oh, cool. from impossible.com is a good place to start or, you know, Amazon's got all the Kindle versions, audio versions and, hardback and everything else. Awesome. Aaron, uh, I, I feel like it's never enough time for with us. Like we could just talk forever, but we, we did give away 20 minutes of free parenting advice uh, from, from Uncle <laughs> yeah. Colin and, and, and Papa Ross. So <laughs> hopefully people enjoy that. It was good to catch up with you, man. Is there anything, anything last you want to, you want to drop in any other things you're working on? No, man, I know it's a, it's a tough time in the world for lots of people. And I'd say that uh, you're not, if you're feeling burnout or depression and, angst and everything else but you're not alone you know there's i don't know a third of there's just huge swaths of people out there that experience that people in my own family feel that i get burned out every once in a while here and it's it's a regular thing that comes and goes and you just got to keep uh every day getting through it and make itself a little bit better tackling one extra thing and embracing i say embrace the turmoil or embrace the shit and yeah. you can come out the other side in a better place if you if you do that versus try to avoid it yeah. And don't be afraid to make changes this year. I know I, my life, God, if I look back six months ago, like I don't even recognize my life anymore, but, uh, and I'm making yeah. bigger changes. I'm, I know I'm not happy in the city to your point. Like people are stressed or we're getting depressed. Like I'm sitting in this tiny apartment in New York. I don't have an office to go to. You can't go date. Like no one's going and dating with masks on and stuff. Like I'm a single guy. So, so I'm getting out of this city. Like don't be afraid to make changes and just kind of reset your life as we go into the yeah. new year. That's exactly Aaron, right. it's always a thanks, pleasure. Uh, we'll yep. have to catch up soon. There's still always more to talk about, but thanks for taking oh, time. Oh, yeah. And uh, take care. Have a great Thanksgiving. Uh, enjoy the holidays, the new year, and I'm sure we'll, we'll catch up soon. Yep. Sounds good. Thanks, my take friend. Care. Bye, Aaron. Mm -hmm.